the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let me shift gears into a issue that we deal with with great frequency on this program. And I'll start by saying that last year alone, in 2019, fully 17 states enacted some sort of abortion-restrictive regulations, largely to try to stem the tide of late-term abortions and some more of the acts, I mean, they're all horrific when you talk about loss of life by any means, but some of the more horrific types of measures that we've seen even Congress get involved with, with things like the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act of several years ago. So 2019, 17 states enacting some sort of abortion-restrictive regulations, while only four, in fact, enacted laws affirming abortions, I'll give you one guess as to which state is on the list. Uh, It starts with a C. It's along the West Coast. Yeah. Let's get an update as to where things stand in all of this. And joining me now is the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX, as well as the Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, dear friend and brother for many, many years, Brian Johnston. Brian, thanks for taking some time in the midst of all the craziness going on these days in America for joining us. Well, Craig, an honor, and as you know, you're exactly right. But I'm going to tie this together, and I think it's important that really the reason that abortions will be brought to an end is when people see the humanity of these children. And that's inescapable in late-term abortion. That is something that 80% of Americans that call themselves pro-choice, when they are asked about the specifics of that meeting, they do not support later-term abortions because they see a human individual. And I'll be honest with you, what we saw last week on the television was not a depiction, it wasn't a dramatic TV show, we saw a unique human being killed before our eyes. And George Floyd's right to life was literally taken from him, even though that is supposedly one of the premises of our founding documents, that every unique individual is endowed by their creator with the right to be alive, and the duty of the government is to protect that life, a nation the world who had to watch that is rightly, rightly angry and agitated and demanding justice. But I want to go one step further, Craig, because I've talked about it here, and the problem that we as Americans have is we do not understand true justice, and I am looking to a particular justice of the Supreme Court right now who was a radical black activist, and that's Justice Clarence Thomas. And he specifically has dealt with this issue in both aspects. 
just recently, and I hope you don't mind my going in this direction, but I believe it's tied very closely to what we're watching as a nation, Craig. Justice Clarence Thomas was just seen on PBS, and I believe in the Bay Area you still might be able to see it for free if you go to pbs.org. If not, you can order the film. It's extremely powerful. It touches on this issue. It's called Created Equal, the Clarence Thomas story, Clarence Thomas in his own words. The reason I bring this up is I have been studying Clarence Thomas in his own words. And as we have mentioned before, the right to life as an issue isn't about how I feel about babies. And the right to life as an issue isn't about my personal theology. The right to life is about taking the life of an innocent individual human being. And Thomas, when he was being confirmed for the Supreme Court, was attacked, but not directly on the abortion issue. It was all about abortion. We know that. But instead, they made it about natural law. They said to Thomas, and it's interesting, if you watch this film, again, it's available. I recommend it, probably the best example of contemporary history being explained. And you literally have Joe Biden excoriating Clarence Thomas wanting to know, what's all this about natural law? Why do you have to base it on natural law? And the reason, and, and Clarence Thomas is right, is because natural law is what God has used to reveal basic principles, and it's what our founders said when they established this nation. We're going to base our laws on the laws of nature and of nature's God, on self-evident truth. This is essential for lifers to understand, because if we don't adhere to natural law, there's no right to life. There's no such thing as a right to life. That emanates from what nature has, has demonstrated. Again, as Christians know, God has demonstrated his existence, his invisible nature, to everyone, so they're without excuse. And that's what our founders were saying in natural law. And if you look at Clarence Thomas's confirmation, the entire argument was, why do you have to base laws on natural law? And it's because killing an innocent human being is a violation of natural law, and they know that. But they didn't want to sound like they were championing abortion. Instead, they wanted to get into the arcane aspects of the law, and Clarence Thomas stood his ground. It's an incredibly powerful, powerful presentation of these issues. But that's what we saw literally in the case of, of George Floyd, is the reason we are all upset, and rightly so, is because this was an innocent human being. And under our laws, you're innocent until proven guilty. And the very individual who was killing him is someone who swore to protect that life. Yeah. That's why the rage is there. But there's something deeper that Clarence Thomas points out and that I pointed out in recent discussions. The difference between natural law and progressivism. Natural law, you deal with individuals, both in terms of protecting individual lives and holding accountable individuals for their actions. Under progressivism, they don't deal with individuals. They assume individuals are part of a group 
a social group. And so progressivism is irate because that was a black man that died. And therefore, the group which they have branded black, now there must be rage because groups are being pitted against each other. And that's the premise of Marxism, of course, is pitting groups against each other to divide. But the reason, and Clarence Thomas would back me up on this, it's a powerful story, by the way. He tells us he was in Boston. He was involved in race riots in Boston, Clarence Thomas. And as he walked back in the wee hours of the morning, he stopped at a chapel, and he asked God to please take the hatred out of my heart. And he began, or I might say he renewed his walk of faith. But the hatred we're seeing is because we're not basing a sense of justice on natural law. It's on progressivism or positivist law, where groups, oh, this group needs to be brought down because they're oppressors. This group should be elevated because they've been oppressed. And we've been taught to be amateur sociologists as a culture and look at groups as somehow the basis of justice. That is not. And again, our whole society has been taught this. That's why it's so common. But it doesn't bring justice, and it doesn't bring peace. It brings division. We've seen it in other nations. That's literally what all progressive cultures and laws bring about, is they pit groups against each other. They don't protect individuals. And the right to life, and the reason, back to where we are, the right to life is about the law protecting each and every individual life that's been made in the image of God, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. And that's why our movement was called the Right to Life back in 73, because what's happening now in abortion is precisely the violation. But the reason people don't get worked up about it is they never show you, they never tell you. They use semantic words, and they use, they, they refer to groups, and in specific words describe this, choice reproductive rights, and they don't deal with the specific action of what's taking place, the specific killing of these children, even late-term children, children that are born alive, and as we've talked about, the unborn sanctuary movement now starting in California is a reaction to the fact that Gavin Newsom will not enforce the Born Alive Into Protection Act. We know it's going on. There's many late-term abortions documented now in California. We know because they're selling the body parts. They don't like that kind of discussion. But they don't want to discuss these children. When they're born alive in the, in the course of an abortion, people understand that's a, that's a human baby. That's a unique individual life. And people get upset. That's why the media does not discuss late-term abortion. They don't. The one thing Governor Northam did... A year ago, if he was willing to talk about it, he was defending it. And the media doesn't want that, because if you talk about it and defend it, you're admitting it's happening. Their plan is to never admit it happens. And yet we demonstrated the Freedom of Information Act request, State of California, in Inc. will pay for any abortion throughout gestations. doesn't matter of gestation. Throughout all nine months, there need be nothing wrong with the child, nothing wrong with the mother. It's not about hard cases. They've lied to you about that. 
Doe v. Bolton has given license to kill those kids in the name of sociological health that the abortionist feels. So this is something that, again, we're in a battle of ideas, and unless we understand the that we're a nation of ideas founded on sound ideas. What I'm concerned about, I know that Clarence Thomas is too, but we're seeing a move now to change the fundamental premise of America and simply dismiss America as founded and dismiss those fundamental, God-given, self-evident truths as the foundation for law and move to well, and s- law. And sadly, so much of this... Brian, I think, is also the, the result of, a, and we've talked about this before, the result of a culture of death in our society today. There is such a devaluing of the, of the importance and preciousness of life, the notion that each and every one of us is created in the very image of God himself and that we need to protect life from cradle to grave. We dispense with people that reach a certain age and health condition in life and feel as if, well, they're too costly to care for, uh, they're no longer productive, contributing citizens to America, and so let's dispense with them, and if they wish to uh, terminate their life, we'll even help them and we'll allow a doctor to assist in the process. Then on the other end of the spectrum, certainly we see the tragic um, loss of life in relationship to abortion on demand, and whether it's done because because it's unexpected or it's inconvenient or it's not the gender you hope for or whatever, suddenly we we just say, well, we'll dispose of it. And I'm grateful to God that things like the ability to have a sonogram and that advancement in technology has allowed us to see and recognize and to show others that, that what's growing inside of a woman is not just a blob of tissue, as sadly it's often been referred to, but an actual living human being. And then, of course, across the center, as we've seen focused on since a week ago Monday, is the ter- tragic disregard for the value of life. And we talked yesterday on the program about the fact that um, th- there is a sense that some people have that life is disposable, not valued, and not treated in the same fashion. And this is something that we as a nation need to get over. We need to come to terms with it. We need to get a grip. And then we need to move past this and start recognizing the intrinsic value in every and all life, from cradle to grave and everything in between. And that it's not just the value of certain types of lives, but every single life, because every single life is created in the very likeness and image of God. And I believe that it is the the growth of the so-called culture of death in America along with a major paradigm shift away from God and at the core sin nature abounding in humankind that uh, that sadly has led to so much of this tragedy that we've seen, whether it begins with um, the discussion we've had today on the topic of abortion in 1973 to the long and sordid and sad history that we've had of tragic racism in this country that has led to so much tragic loss of life, to just violence on the streets and the willingness of one human being to just discard the life of another for no reason whatsoever. And sadly, the product of not knowing who our creator is fosters so much of this. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. We appreciate the update. You can check out Life Matters Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. More information available on the web at californiaprolife.org. 
All right, let's get you updated on some traffic here. 619 on the clock. Here's the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you follow the news, we hear many stories of what is developing in India. Of course, India is one of our primary trading partners. A lot of news focused on what's going on in the economy of India and its partnership with the United States. But what about what's going on on the continent spiritually and morally? Joining me with some insights is Brother Philip, not his real name, but he is with Mission India and joins us today in studio. And Brother Philip, great to see you. Hello. We talk a lot about what's going on with the finances of India and this great partnership that we've seen developing between the United States and India over many, many years now, um, certainly in the arena of high tech and whatnot. But there's so much more going on behind the scenes in the continent that I think would be of particular interest to our listeners today, especially in the realm of, of what God is doing across the continent of India. We know that while there is tremendous growth Within the church, new church plants taking place every day, new people being baptized into the body of believers. We also understand that there's a tremendous amount of persecution taking place in India as well. Tell us a bit about that. Greg, thank you. I think uh, um, you have put the uh, question in the right perspective. Uh, India is a land of challenges and opportunities. And of late, I understand God has shifted his office to India. And he's operating from there. Well, there is a persecution, there is opposition, animosity. It's always there. And it's also there today. But the other side, there are open doors. People who have been seeking for truth for ages. Now coming to understanding, the seeking doesn't really help running from pillar to post. But there is truth that is already available. And that's the reason there are untold millions of people in India today are coming to the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. Before 2000, year 2000, the percentage of Christianity in India is between 2.7 to 3. But today, people in missions like us, we believe it is almost to the tune of 5 to 7 percent. Wow, so almost double. Double. Because people are having hunger to know the truth. Even though there are 330 million gods and goddesses, people find despite of appeasing them over and over again, they're unable to get answers for their life questions. And it's interesting because India is so much characterized as a nation that is spiritually hungry. I mean, when you talk about the practice of, of Hinduism and the 330 million mm-hmm. gods, and um, while certainly every group in different parts of the country geographically will worship and observe different gods, sometimes yeah. multiple gods, yeah. um, from an American perspective, we all know of a Shiva. Uh, but on top of that, there are upwards of 330 million different gods, gods or deities that are recognized, God with a small g. It's fascinating how that this spiritual thirst of the Indian people that seeks to want to appease God, uh, seeks to want to, um, in, in, in some way, seek favor from God 
and in the appeasement, doing what we can to not make God jealous of us, uh, doing what we can to do something for God. And what a fascinating contrast then when the gospel message enters into that realm and people now for the first time hear of a God that doesn't seek for us to do something for him. The story is really about what he has done for us. us. And I would imagine for millions of Hindus then, this is a wonderfully liberating message because it it is such a stark contrast between what they have worshiped and served and followed for all of their lives and suddenly to hear about this other God that has cared for the people of India so much that he would sacrifice his only begotten son, that instead of him seeking that we do sacrifices unto him, instead he has allowed his son to be sacrificed on behalf of us. That, that's got to be an amazing message when, when it is delivered to a, an Indian seeker. That's right. That's a great paradigm shift. You know, instead of you doing something, there is somebody who has already done something on the cross of Calvary. Now, we are just pointing out to that person, you know. In India, as you rightly said, you know, it's a very, very religious nation. People believe in God. Every day they do something that would please God. And in this struggle of uh, pleasing and appeasing God, there is a great passion and thirst to know, am I doing right thing? Is my prayer answered? Is there answer for my questions of life? Is there anything that that can resolve, you know, uh, the struggle that I'm going through in my life? And uh, sadly, a lot of people of India do not have answers. And I think so much of the religion, too, that focuses on things such as karma and reincarnation that, that are always... Every question begets another question, and that question begets yet another question. And the irony is, not just Indian people, but people around the world, uh, they have the questions. What they're looking for are answers. Can I know God? Can I be sure in my relationship with him? Can I have a relationship with him? What does that relationship look like? Does heaven exist? Does hell exist? And if so, where am I bound? Is there an afterlife? We have so many questions, and yet sadly, so many of the world's religions, including Hinduism, fail to answer any of those questions. I guess in that respect, then, it's no wonder that you've seen such a phenomenal growth. And going from a 2%, 2.5% to 55 6% of the Indian population believing in Jesus Christ in just the last decade, decade and a half, well, perhaps from American uh, percentile numbers might not be too impressive. When you put that against the backdrop of a nation that has more than a billion inhabitants, We're talking about significant growth, significant numbers. We're talking about Christianity and the good news of the gospel message spreading like wildfire across the entire continent. And so, therefore, I guess we shouldn't be surprised at some of the stories that we've heard of tremendous persecution, both at the hands of secularists, Hindus, and even Muslims to the north part of the country. And then at the end of the day, India is really becoming a major spiritual battleground then for for the very soul of the Indian people. For a church planter, you know, every day there is a spiritual warfare and he's mentally prepared for it. 
because i would always say that you know if the church sleeps saturn sleeps if church is awake mm-hmm. saturn is awake and the persecution is the sign of church growth in india and we are not surprised we are not surprised there's something a church has burnt a couple of weeks back in india you know pastors pulled a couple of months back a pastor was stabbed in a uh, very close to a city that i live he was brutally killed and uh, does it stop the movement of god the sweep of the holy spirit in india No. Yeah, this is the iron irony I think that even as much as the communists I think back of what happened in China for example in 1949 and right. when Mao took over and they shut down the universities the the Christian colleges and universities they closed down uh, the seminaries they jailed all the pastors they boarded up the evangelical churches and the church went from having maybe 80,000 to 100,000 Christians at that time to now millions and millions of believers a number so large that even the government numbers can't hope to even reach what that reality looks like and so the irony is that the harder the enemy fights to try and stop the spread of the gospel the faster the gospel spreads <laughs> that's just god's way in god's economy that's the way it works yeah, that's it. that's what exactly is happening in india you know the numbers that i have with me right now is like you know um uh, the churches have an exponential great uh, growth today you know in india people are inquiring people are coming to the lord it's not because there are crusades not because there are big conventions and all that it's one on one you know especially when we train people as a church planters we always train them that the the making disciples should be our motto because a disciple based church is multiplies so it's very grassroots yeah Yep. in that viewpoint it's very reflective of the first century church of the book of acts yep. um, each one tells one right. and then the one-on-one discipleship in prayer church attendance baptism reading of god's word sharing your faith with others If you've just joined us our conversation today with Brother Philip, he is here visiting from India on behalf of our friends at Mission India. We'll take a brief time out and continue with this update on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. With me today is Brother Philip. He is with Mission India. We're talking about what God is doing across the entire continent. And uh, Brother Philip, just before the break, we got into some conversation pertaining to influences and challenges facing the church as it shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I I particularly want to come to this topic of man's innate sin nature. We like to add layers of complexity to all of this from a comparative religious viewpoint but at the end of the day i have to wonder from your perspective is is part of this at the very core just simply an issue of man's sin nature i mean whether we are trying to avoid dealing with very god himself and the question of our relationship with him and our sin and the need for repentance to be reconciled unto him to receive forgiveness to walk in fellowship with him and we avoid that by 
concentrating on all of these other gods that are made of, of clay and of the work of man, or whether we try to avoid that question by going out and making $10 million on Wall Street next week and buying the biggest mansion on the corner lot. At the end of the day, it seems to me it's all really about one core issue, and that is, again, this struggle between good and evil, God and the enemy, and man's fallen nature and our propensity to try to avoid confrontation with God. Because if we, if we have to be engaged in, in being confronted by God, we are then confronted by our own sin, and we then begin to realize, much as Adam did there in the Garden of Eden, that I am suddenly without any clothing. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. So is that part of the dynamic here that we see in India? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. You know, um, I think the mission's concern today in India is like, you know, you have uh, 29 states, 7 union territories, 1.21 billion people. Uh, some people say there are 4,653 people groups, caste and subcaste. Out of that, uh, if we precisely... Um, speak about the distinct people groups in India, there are 2,234 out of which 2,013 people groups are considered unreached according to the research done. Wow. A lot of work to be done. So much work to be done. So uh, as a guy involved with the missions in India, I personally feel with having all said and done with, with, with uh, so much of uh, complexity of things in India, we have a, a business to complete. Mm-hmm. We have a mission to accomplish. So many years, I think the Great Commission has become a great omission, even by the churches. So sad. We are so bogged down with the, the compound uh, style of functioning of a church, not being uh, sensitive to the needs of the surroundings. But I think this is a time that we break those walls, build the bridges into the communities, and let this life-changing, the transforming power of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ has to reach to this 2013 so-called unreached people groups in India. So then it really becomes a matter of not the methodology per se, which we tend to be hung up on, particularly from a Western standpoint. We do something that it seems to work, and so we decide, okay, this is the way it needs to be done. And we try to then uh, duplicate that everywhere that we go. The problem is that it doesn't always cross cultural lines, societal lines, linguistical lines, historic lines, whatever the case might be. So while the methodology may need to change, we know at the core, the message remains the same. You're right. No matter how you present it, to whom it's presented, in what tongue it's presented, it is the same, same. message. Have we gotten too hung up then on methodology, and has that gotten in our way of effectively communicating the message? See, again, uh, there is a challenge. Like, you know, when you again come back to, as I said, the major chunk of India is in rural India. And uh, 
Today, almost like 66.9% of Indian rural cannot read and write. You know, so a lot of us, we try to print a lot of books, literature, distribute them maybe 100 times in a year and all that, you know. Um, not asking the fundamental question, can they read that at mm. all? Can they read? They don't. They can't. So... Uh, methodology, you know, keeps changing according to the context of the people, the culture of the people. As you rightly said, the gospel is the same, right? But it's the method and the cult uh, based on, we always keep the uh, context or the culture as a backdrop when you present the gospel in India. What culture are they in? What is the context uh, in uh, uh, that they're living in. So that is always the priority. Well, and I think that's important no matter to whom we're sharing the gospel because the relatability is critically important. And obviously the manner in which presenting the gospel and relating the gospel to somebody that comes from a culture that has as a backdrop 330 million different deities is going to be entirely different than presenting the gospel to somebody who historically has come from a family of atheists. In the one scenario, you have to convince and lead a person through the Holy Spirit to come to decide or understand that above all the other gods, this is the God, as opposed to having to convince a person that God himself even exists. So you're right. There needs to be that cultural sensitivity. And it strikes me, too, as you mentioned about uh, literacy rates, we come back full circle to the beginning of our conversation with regard to the the methodology modeled by the first century church and the apostles. And, and while we see many of those apostles who walked with Jesus, who could have easily said, I mean, a, a Matthew could have said, well, I've written this book. <laughs> let's, let's make copies on papyrus, and we will send them on to Corinth, and they can read this book. He didn't say that, though. Instead, what did the apostles do? They got up and they went. Jesus didn't send books, and I'm not, I want to be cautious here. I don't want people to think that I'm against the sending of the printed word or distribution of the gospel. I'm behind that 110%. But what I'm suggesting is that there are times when the most effective means, as in this case, is the sending of an individual who can go in, walk with a person, share with a person, reach a person for Christ, and then we've so often seen that becomes sort of a domino effect, that each one tells one, and before you know it, a person has reached a village, the village has been reached for Christ, that village reaches its neighboring village, and on and on it goes. And suddenly we now begin to understand how India can see church growth of as much as 15,000 people a day coming to Jesus Christ. It's yeah. the most brilliant and most effective strategy because it's God's strategy yeah. for reaching the world. Uh, when we talk about literature or printing a book or anything like that, there is a dichotomy again. There are people, because they cannot read and write, they, they can't read. They don't understand anything. But there are people who can read but cannot understand. Like, you know, in the Bible you see in the book of Acts, um, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he was reading something, but, you know, he doesn't understand anything. And when Philip goes there, he says, do you understand what you are reading? He says, no, I can't. So 
you see the the dichotomy mm-hmm. in even in india mm-hmm. because there you know india always have those paradoxes extremely intellectual extremely illiterate you know and the gospel has to go to the both ends mm-hmm. and that's a big challenge as for a missions like us it's a big challenge so we print books you know we push them to the places where people can read but reading uh, that doesn't really just simply uh, be helpful so we give them the tools so that they understand what they read the other extreme is like you know people who cannot read what we do we teach them first how to read so that is where the literacy movement role is in india you know making them to read and write their own language there are a number of stories people after reading they understood they are the real human beings before that they were substandard mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they felt you know what is we have no role in our society because simply because we don't read and write they have no value no, no role in no, society no, no and no capacity to change yeah, especially women folk mm-hmm. you know that's the reason they were always at the backstage because simply you know they have nothing nothing to contribute they felt you know we have no identity absolutely It's amazing the way the gospel of Christ can come into a situation like that and suddenly provide that identity wow. and worth and value. Yeah. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition of the program. We are pleased to have with us today in studio from India, Brother Philip. He is with Mission India. We've been talking about what God is doing all across the continent, some of the phenomenal levels of growth, and most importantly, how you and I as the church in America can and should be praying for our brothers and sisters in India. As our conversation, Brother Philip, draws to a close, let me ask you this. As much as we've talked a lot about the the contrasts not only in in reaching people with the gospel across the continent of India but then too contrast in the way it is handled in India versus the western world but the one thing in addition to the message being the same across both scenarios and that is this notion of coming alongside an individual in discipleship um as much as you have to do that to help the intellect understand and open his or her spiritual eyes to understand what they're reading the same thing is true here in the United States anywhere that you go and so again we come back full circle to that original model demonstrated by the first century church as handed down by the apostles as hands down the most effective means of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ that is right that's what exactly the the the, the church planters in india now uh, are uh, um, Uh, trained to do like they're equipped to do like you know come back to the basics <laughs> back to the bible again you know because we have a wonderful model set by the first century church what happened when they were doing this four things number one the they were uh, uh doing the the teachings of the apostles they were doing the sacraments they had the fellowship they were praying when they they have done these four things there are other things happened uh as the uh there's as the impact of their meeting together you know miracles started taking place people started coming to the lord and you know as you read acts chapter 2 3 4 up to 6 you see that you know the numbers were 
humongous mm-hmm. multiplied day after day you know that's what exactly is happening in india today that's what happening today because obedience based discipleship teaching is going on intentional discipleship not not later mm-hmm. let's do it later no once a person comes to know the lord make him intentional let me make a statement if you are not fishing you are not following jesus said follow me i will make you fishers of men so when you follow there is a business that you have to do this is what exactly we teach to uh, our indian church planters and i think that's an important note to to underscore as we conclude our conversation today because it would be folly for anyone to suggest that you could go along the side of the river uh, lay a basket out there and say come fishies and watch them just swim up and jump into the basket it doesn't happen that way you need to intentionally put the bait on the hook on the line drop the line in the water wait for the fish to respond to the bait pull it up grab the line and put the fish in the basket it is a very intentional very purpose-minded procedure in order to catch fish and the same thing is true when we are fishers of men it needs to be not just incidental or accidental discipleship it needs to be intentional discipleship because that intentional discipleship then begats other intentional disciples you're right and you're we right. make the difference then or the delineation between giving a man a fish for a day versus teaching him to fish for a lifetime and in the case of the application of of that that methodology when it comes to sharing the gospel when we underscore the importance of intentional discipleship, we can then see a church that continues to advance strong and increase not only in numeric growth, but also in spiritual, spiritual growth. growth. You know, um, uh, the concern of uh, the church today is not the growth, it's the health. Mm-hmm. Are we growing healthy? Do we have healthy churches? so that the healthy church can reproduce well it's the same finish. question we even face uh, brother philip here in america and that is that uh, you know the, the church can oftentimes readily be accused of being what's the old adage a mile wide and only an inch deep and that's because that oftentimes that intentional discipleship is missing prayer bible study sharing of one's faith all of those components is missing that's true and that can be as detrimental to the health of the church in America as it can be on the continent of India. Brother Philip, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Pleasure is uh, mine. We encourage our listeners to be in prayer for your ministry, for the work of Mission India. And if you want to find more information about uh, what Brother Philip is doing and what God is doing across the continent of India, you can get more details on the web at missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.